0: A few weeks ago in December 2020, well, as of the time of this recording, we're recording today on January 4th, and in mid-December, Jason and I received an email from one of our listeners that was really wonderful, and it was asking us about the topic of gender identity. This person was requesting if we could discuss more than just the two genders, male and female, man and woman, he and she... And including more non-binary, they, them, theirs pronouns when talking about society and people in general, because not everybody identifies with he, she, male or female. And I was so grateful for this email because it gave me an opportunity to reflect on how I speak. And I really feel like this was in or 2020 was a very eye-opening year for me. We started to explore race in a different way on this show. We started to work our way towards being more inclusive for Jason and I being white and each of us are straight or cisgendered. And we just feel like it's time for us to expand beyond our personal experiences and make it feel like everyone is welcome here because that's really our role with this show. And I think emails like this gave me that opportunity to recognize that maybe not everybody feels included when they listen. And that's become... Something I'm very passionate about, I suppose. And Melissa, our guest today, this was actually part of how we found you for this show, is because I put out a, a call asking for guests that could speak about this more openly and incorporate it into our discussion. So I'm really excited to talk with you today, and I wanted to start off giving some backstory, but also share that I honestly feel a little bit ignorant on the subject matter. You know, like I, I'm still learning to feel comfortable with using. Binary terms because I'm just not used to them. You know, like it's not that I have a, a reason not to use them. It's just that I haven't been in the practice of it. And one thing actually that I am trying to work towards and I really want to better understand is when in like social media profiles or biographies, like people now are putting in parentheses what their uh, pronouns are. Like for me, it'd be like she, her. And I'm not in the practice of doing that. And I think like one of my first questions for both of you, because Jason, I'm curious, we haven't really discussed this much even off the podcast. I'm trying to understand like how that benefits other people, I suppose, because again, this is where my ignorance is. Like for me, I, I guess I just assume that people know that I'm a she her, but now I'm recognizing that we can't make those assumptions about anybody. And that's why it's important to clarify. And I think the fact that I was assuming that other people were assuming this about me, I think is part of the problem, if that makes sense. And I'm curious how you feel about this, Melissa.
1: That's exactly the issue. It's all about assumptions. We're looking at external presentations and making an assumption about someone's gender and someone's gender identity and someone's sex. And those really can't be utilized. Because there are individuals who present one day in a more masculine light, and then the next day present in a more feminine light, or they live in a completely androgynous non-binary state. And we can't make those assumptions. We want to make sure that we're letting people identify themselves as they want to be seen and presented. So this is something that I have in all my emails is that my pronouns are she, her. So I am also a cisgendered straight individual, but I work with a large population of LGBTQ athletes and patients in my practice as a chiropractor. And I am a more recent graduate. I graduated in 2015 and going through school, this was not taught. There was no discussion of gender, of sex, what the differences of those are pronoun identification, the differences between a chosen name and a dead name, how to utilize that. And it gets so nuanced, especially with insurances and what's the legal sex of the individual versus how they're presenting to the world and what their pronouns are. It really becomes quite a mess. And that's the whole point of this movement is to remove assumptions and let individuals just be themselves.
2: The interesting thing that comes up for me, Melissa, and I'm very much a curious student of human psychology, Whitney as well. And one of the things that we love to explore here and just in general is is trying to get to sort of some of the subconscious or maybe actually conscious decisions or motivations why people are making. And the thing that I sit with a lot is how... It seems that most of life, we are conditioned to accept one of two choices. You're either straight, you're gay, you're male, you're female, you're Democrat, you're Republican, you're pro-life, you're pro-choice. It seems that life in many ways from birth, most human beings are conditioned to make one choice or the other. It's a very black and white, very binary system in our society that we keep reinforcing. And my curiosity that I sit with a lot is why some people feel so Threatened you know that they feel so radically uncomfortable to the point of violence or you know I guess leveraging you know physical harm on people that don't fall into one category or the other and i and I rather than focusing on you know advocating for rights beyond that, I also try and think about what is so threatening to a, a human being to meet another person that doesn't fit into those categories, and what is so scary about that you know and I guess I'm just curious the psychology behind why something that is outside of the binary norm is so threatening to people? Why it's so scary for some people to accept?
1: So I'm not a psychologist and that is definitely not my specialty, but I do have a theory on why this can be so hard for individuals to accept. And it goes back to fundamentally when we were Neanderthals, when we were out in nature, hunter gatherers, we needed to determine, is it going to kill me or not kill me? And we had to make that split-second decision, death, no death, eat, no eat. Is it safe? Is it not safe? And we had to make those binary decisions. And I think that was very hardwired Into our nature. And it's why we have fight or flight. Can I fight what's going on or do I need to run away? And now we live in a society where we're basically safe. We have everything provided for us. We don't have the risk of necessarily, let me caveat, necessarily have the risk of not having food and shelter. 2020s made that very questionable for a number of individuals and is a horrifying situation all around. But generally speaking, we are able to expand what we are capable of doing. And this has allowed individuals to actually explore who they are. And that's where the gender is no longer black or white. It's a gray scale. There are multiple ends to the spectrum. And even the most masculine males, I would consider my husband a fairly masculine, straight-laced, cisgendered male. He is a huge musical fan. And he loves his guilty pleasures. RuPaul's Drag Race loves that show. And those are not traditionally strong huh, cisgender male things, but it's what he likes. So there is always a spectrum of how individuals present no matter what. So it really comes down to we have our fundamental nature that was ingrown to us to keep us safe, to keep us alive from when we were in a hunter-gatherer society, crawling across the African plains to now we sit in our cushy heated homes and we're starting to venture beyond that. And some people just can't psychologically handle it, which is why they can have such a visceral reaction to something that's different.
2: It's interesting you brought up your husband because one of the things that we've discussed here on the podcast is Something that throughout, you know, the course of my life and Whitney, you asked a previous question a few minutes ago about sort of how I handled gender pronouns and, and my approach. And I, it's a, a much larger conversation. And the point, Melissa, you brought up about your husband and, you know, his guilty pleasures and RuPaul's Drag Race and being a huge music fan. And, you know, for me, I remember being a young teenager. Well, first of all, just being being a young man and feeling very sensitive and feeling like my capacity... Even now to feel emotion is so deep and so broad and I feel things so deeply. And I remember as a young man, you know, feeling so confused about this because people would automatically assume that I was homosexual. They're like, oh, well, he must be gay. And, you know, and I I was actually called in high school you know a lot of homophobic slurs and it was always confusing to me because I'm like well are they seeing something I'm not seeing do I actually what's going on here and so it's been an interesting exploration for me to examine you know my sexuality my identity and what I've kind of arrived at is just liking what I like that, you know, I can like muscle cars and motorcycles and shooting guns and also love Broadway shows and love drag queens and love, you know, I like 25% of my wardrobe now is actually women's clothing. And I just, I think it just comes down to like the older that I've gotten, I like what I like. I love what I love. Sometimes, you know, I'm not quite sure how to describe it to people. My therapist and I were working a few years ago, and I came up with a term called energetically androgynous because I do identify as he, him. But inside, I feel like I just like what I like. It's like, yeah, I like wearing women's clothes sometimes. I feel good in them. I don't know what that says about me, and I'm okay with that.
1: (laughs) All right. Let's go over gendered clothing, which is honestly the stupidest concept that ever... It's absolutely stupid because... Who cares what we clothe our body in to present ourselves to the world? It does not matter. I mean, if we look through history, high-heeled shoes were initially created for butchers to keep blood off their shoes. So traditionally, they were made for men. Back in the early 1900s, pink was traditionally a masculine color and light blue was traditionally a feminine color. And then it switched. When we look at the history of how what is masculine, what is feminine, it changes. It flip flops with the times and how things are felt. So I honestly hate the fact that clothing is gendered other than there are certain times that like if I were to purchase a more masculine fitted suit, it would not accommodate the fact that I have breasts and I need the darting to make sure that the suit fits appropriately to my body. But there are individuals that have large chests that don't identify as female. There is no need for us to gender our clothing, gender colors, gender unnecessary items. Because we're all just humans and we all just have to go out into the world and we should be able to like what we want to like.
0: Absolutely. And this reminds me of something else I've been noticing and and part of my own awakening to this subject matter, because like I said, it's something I've had the privilege of not Focusing that much on up until recently. And I feel like it's part of being supportive or an ally to others who need us to speak up on these things. Like, I think that's one of the reasons I want to start clarifying my pronouns is so it's giving not permission, but like it's helping other people feel more comfortable and included by using those and something else that i've noticed uh, especially on social media is how there's a big trend of gender reveal videos you know like people have these special parties and they do all of these things to reveal their child's gender before the child's even born and then like Somebody pointed out recently how bizarre that is. And it's so traditional and it sounds really fun. But then if you step back and examine it in the context of this conversation, you realize like, wow, we're picking somebody's Well, not picking necessarily, but like maybe in a way we are, like we're having this child, we're picking a name for it. And then we're in a lot of ways assigning a gender or projecting a gender onto this child before they even know for
1: themselves. Yeah. Here's what I wish. One, you have to delineate the difference between sex and gender. Sex is what you are born with and what your organs, your external sex organs present as. So this could be male, this could be female, this could be intersex because there are individuals that are born with both testes and ovaries and have ambiguous genitalia and are intersex. That is your sex. So I really wish they would call them sex reveal parties, but then us in America cannot handle the conversation of sex and genitalia. Ooh, the horrors of the penis and the vagina. So you have that, they have sex reveal parties. Gender is how you see yourself. And this is something that you express as you age. If (laughs) my poor mother had to deal with me as a tomboy, she tried to get me baby dolls. She tried to get me Barbies. And I did the same thing every single time. I'd cut their hair, I'd perform surgery, and then I usually blew them up, which I know not the healthiest expression of childhood, but I didn't want to play with Barbies. I wanted to go to rocket camp and I wanted to play and make model rockets. And I wanted to go to photography and I wanted to do art and I wanted to express myself creatively that way. And I wanted to climb trees and run in the mud and I didn't want to look cute and pretty and do makeup and do my hair. That wasn't me. So my mom, first of all, was completely convinced that I was going to not be straight and most likely be a lesbian. And it's like, no, I am a tomboy. I'm rough and tumble but I'm straight, and I like men, and that is me, and that's okay. We don't know what our gender is growing up. We're, there's going to be so many times we like different things, and that has to be okay.
2: It's interesting to think about childhood, and I go back to that, and Melissa, and I, and I love that you described this of these assumptions that our parents might make about our gender, our preferences, our you know who we're attracted to, and It reminds me of looking sort of at the children of friends that I have right now and looking at their approach to parenting and how some friends of mine particularly come to mind of looking at their adolescent boys picking up Barbie dolls or playing with the princesses from Frozen and instead of, you know, reacting in this way that is is shaming or negative or potentially confusing to them going like, yeah, if you want to play with Barbies and the princesses from Frozen and Moana and whatever, like go for it and really deeply encouraging their magnetism toward whatever they feel drawn to, you know? And I'm encouraged by looking at you know, our generations and and how some friends and acquaintances are raising their children in that way of like, wear whatever color you want, play with whatever toys you want, and just encouraging this free exploration without restriction or limitation or shaming. And I hope that becomes more of, of the norm because certainly, you know, I don't want to speak for Whitney either, but it sounds, you know, Melissa, like you and I had some interesting similarities. You know, I remember some of the male figures in my family being a little bit confused as to why I didn't I don't even know how to say this, like, engage in more prototypical, aggressive, violent, adolescent male behavior. (laughs) Like, you know, why aren't you more aggressive and violent? You're a man. And it was like, I don't want to be aggressive and violent.
1: Yes. It's so interesting how society has decided what's masculine, what's feminine, what's okay, for a masculine child to enjoy, what's okay for a feminine child to enjoy, which is where we have such a mental health crisis with our youth. And when they are forced to not do things they love, when they're forced to not do things that they want to enjoy, because little kids, five, six-year-olds, they have no idea. They just see a toy that they want to play with. Maybe it's a, they have an older sibling. Maybe they have a sister and it's their little brother and they see their sister playing with Barbie dolls and they look up to their older sister and they go, my sister plays with these. I want to play with them, too. And it ha- they have no idea that they've now just ruined all gender stereotypes in their parents' mind and caused utter chaos. It's just, it's silly, the things that we as adults will apply, pressurize to children, and then they may feel fearful at expressing themselves or admitting who they really are, which is why within the LGBTQ, especially the transgendered individuals, there is an extraordinarily high rate of suicide or attempted suicide and severe anxiety and severe depression. It is astronomical how horrible it can be when they just don't have a little acceptance.
2: What are some ways then that you have seen being useful in supporting transgendered individuals with their mental health? Are there national organizations? Are there, you know, structured support programs? What are some things you've observed potentially being beneficial? And of course, as Whitney said, we're very, very new to Uh, having our eyes and our hearts open to this entire conversation. So mental health is one of the things that we talk a a lot about here. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Melissa. So first of all, yeah, what are some resources or programs or organizations? And then what are ways that as allies we can help?
1: So I'm getting the resources right now because I don't have them off the top of my head, but here's what I'm going to tell you. There is not enough. There's not enough in any stretch of the imagination that is accessible. Some of the biggest issues that I've dealt with is trying to find a LGBTQ accepting mental health provider. I have to actually actively search for those that are accepting of that population because there are frankly some counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists that will not see the LGBTQ community which horrifies me absolutely horrifies me so there are so many times we need to just up the resources and accessibility to them and allow them to have care i'm going to keep googling hold on
2: my question though is why that seems like such i mean i had a visceral reaction to you saying that therapists psychologists, mental health professionals will refuse to see these individuals. I don't understand why.
1: Because potentially their lifestyle goes against their religious beliefs. It really breaks down to being that simple. Or, I mean, another question that I have
0: is Is it possible that there just wasn't enough training up until recently and that maybe they feel too ignorant and underprepared? You know, it's something that I can relate to because, as I said, I feel ignorant about this. And it's like, it's hard to talk about things when you don't feel qualified. But what I learned in 2020 was that it's important to speak up, anyways, and say that you want to learn. And I'm a big believer in replacing I don't know with let's find out, just like you're doing right now in, in Live Time, Melissa, you know. I love that you're you have that let's find out mentality and you're willing to acknowledge your ignorance. And I, I wonder if some of the professionals in the medical community might either not have that mentality or maybe they're not even allowed to approach certain things based on. The rules and regulations, you know, like maybe they can't talk about something that they're not fully trained in and they weren't trained in it
1: because it's a relatively new thing being integrated. It is a complicated situation. Yes, there are going to be times that individuals will refuse to see someone because they don't have the training. And right now, to get training, it's hard because there is limited resources for training for chiropractic in particular. I know now within the program, there is training in gender affirmation, communication with patients, but it's because I do it (laughs) at our school. And I also work and travel and teach continuing education to other chiropractors to make sure that they have access to this if they want it. And that's the pickle is there are some people I've applied to speak at conferences and they've been like, "Mm, that's a little too forward for what we're looking for right now. And I'm going, what? Are we a patient-centered providership? Are we? And then the other thing is time. It takes time. And if you have a counseling, a therapy service that is already full of patients, I hate to say it, but why take the time to learn something for such a small group? And that makes me so mad. But Some things that are available. One, there is the Trans Health Consulting. This is a clinical support mental health provider resource. This helps educate providers. It is through the Gender Education Network. And then there is the Trans Affirming Therapist Academy that helps train them. And I mean, I think they've been around since 2015, which 2015, this has only been around for five years. Transgendered individuals have been around for hundreds of years. So it gets really complicated, really messy when you're trying to help these individuals and get them the care they need because there's so few available.
2: I'm curious, Melissa, in your practice, and the reason I ask this question is because I'm a huge sports fan. and We can probably get into that as we do tangentially here. I'm really interested, and I always click on articles about not just the mental health of athletes, but the sort of reticence for athletes to come out and talk about their sexuality, talk about their gender. And this this kind of slow conversation and slow acceptance of pro athletes talking about all of these topics and in that light i'm curious with your work if you have you know athletes and clients that confide in you or in lieu of having access to proper mental health care that you are sort of like this bastion for them to talk about these kind of things is that something that comes up in your practice and if so how do you handle that when it comes up
1: so I'm fairly blessed with my patients and how, and my athletes that I work with. I specifically am the team chiropractor for three different sports teams. One is a Drum Corps International Marching Band, which is completely gender inclusive and co ed. The other is Minnesota Roller Derby, which is completely. Gender identity inclusive. How, if you identify as female, you can compete in that sport. And then I work with a professional women's football team. And again, if you identify as a female gender and meet the requirements of the league to identify as a female gender, which I believe they use the IOC requirements for a transgender female athlete to compete, you can compete in that sport. And so my job is to, one, Assess my athlete, make sure they are fit and ready to play. Two, depending upon which sport they're in, make sure I know the rules and regulations and they have met the requirements for them to compete in that sport. And this gets really complicated because of the number of people who have this opinion that it is unfair for a transgender female to compete as a female athlete. And this makes me angrier than a hornet's nest because, one, when someone decides to affirm their gender identity, they have decided to transition and affirm who they are as a person. They aren't doing it to go out and play football. They're doing it because it's better than them living in the fake shell of a human that they are and potentially committing suicide because they hate themselves so much. It has nothing to do with the sport. The sport is the bonus that they get to do and enjoy and love as the gender that they identify. And that, that is an incredible experience to get to watch and see an athlete compete at that level. Now, there have been instances that people, oh, say this is unfair. Having this transgender athlete is completely and totally illogically unfair to the cisgendered athletes competing. I'm sorry. Here's some facts. One, If you're competing as a female athlete, you're already going to be judged and critiqued to make sure you're female enough to compete. And most people who don't get into high athletics know this, but up until the early 2000s, athletes had to confirm their gender gender identity via visual inspection. Meaning they had to have enough breast tissue and they had to have the external genitalia of a female plus undergo blood work to confirm their hormones level to prove they were female enough to compete. Well, think about high-level athletes. Think about CrossFit athletes. I'm sorry, do they have the traditional secondary sexual characteristics of curves and breasts? No, because their body fat level is so low. So there are times that athletes compete And their sport forces them to change how they appear identity-wise. And then they have to lessen what they're doing to be able to compete. This has started to change, except for one athlete. And this is a South African track runner called Castor Semena. She is female. She was born female, but she has a condition where she produces excessive testosterone. Her body internally produces testosterone. So yeah. She builds more muscle because that's what testosterone does in every human on the planet. And this has allowed her to compete at a very high level and generally win at the 800 and 400 meter lengths in track. Well, it's gotten to the point where people have said, that's not fair. It's not fair that her body does that. So now she has to take medication or they're trying to force her to compete in the men's division. Well, guess what? If Castor was a man, like, Michael Phelps, who had a genetic condition that allowed him to not produce as much lactic acid so his muscles didn't fatigue, she would be praised for her performance instead of punished. So, the only reason why female trans athletes are seen as a threat is because we can't have women excelling at sports in any way, shape, or form that has them even be close to competitive as a men's sport. Sorry, got on a soapbox.
2: That was enlightening and mind-blowing for so many reasons. So do not apologize. There's no need to do that. It blows my mind, Melissa, for so many reasons. And just to go back on one point that was like a, one of the many holy shit moments already in this podcast, you said that athletes used to have visually inspected. Does that mean that before they were to be signed to a team, if you will, on a contract, that a team doctor would have to look at their naked body and verify them? Is that what you're... Because I've never heard this before, ever. Yeah. Oh my God.
1: So gender verification assessment started back in the 1940s and 50s after there was assumed cheating in the 1930s by, I believe it was Germany and Russia. It was during World War I, World War II era. I always get my years confused. I'm not a history buff. And the Olympics represented the fight in the war but in a athletic sense. So there was the assumption that the some of the female athletes competing weren't actually females. So to ensure fairness, they started doing gender verification, which started off as just having to have a team doctor assess you. Then it actually became when you went to the Olympics, you had to go through the underwear. They nicknamed it the underwear Olympics, where a group of doctors had to Visually assess you for your secondary sexual characteristics, which means if you were in top peak performance and had low body fat and hadn't developed breasts or didn't have curves, you could be denied for not being female enough. They then went to bar body testing, which was to take blood samples and test for XX chromosome or XY chromosome, which this became an issue with a Spanish pole vaulter. She tested XY because she had a condition where, yes, she actually had internal testes, but her body did not accept testosterone. So technically, because we all start off as female in the womb, and then the hormones are released and the receptors in our body transform our body into the sex that we will present as. Well, her body did not utilize testosterone. So physically and externally female, but she was XY. So she had metals stripped and a whole lawsuit ensued and was overturned and metals were reinstated. Oh, it's just a nightmare. And so they went back to a more visual inspection and blood work testing to make sure hormone levels weren't too high. And that's where Castor Semena, her testosterone is not at a masculine level, at, not at a male level testosterone level, but it is above a normal female level. And so she now has to take medication to lower her hormones so that she can compete. And that doesn't even go into the absolute ridiculousness of the IOC regulations, which is the International Olympic Committee's regulations on female athlete competition and the level of testosterone that they are allowed to have to be competitive. One, they have to have legally transitioned to female four years prior to competition, meaning they have to be living as a female. They then need to be on hormones and hormone blockers to block testosterone for at least a year prior to competition and have monthly blood draws showing that their testosterone level is less than 10 micromoles per deciliter of blood. Average female athlete is 80. So they're having to go way below the norm to get that level. And like, it makes them sick. They just want to do something they love. And they are forcing their bodies into these horrific, horrific situations. And then God God forbid they win. They are eviscerated in the media for just competing and being successful. A good example of this was uh, Laurel Hubbard. She is a power lifter out of New Zealand, and she won the women's powerlifting in 2017. She won it. But everybody accused her of cheating because she was a transgender female. Well, guess what? It pissed off a cisgender woman who came back and beat her the following year. When competition is raised, people step up to the level. If we keep belittling female athletes and not allowing them to achieve the highest levels, female sports will always be considered boring compared to men's sports, because that's that's what people say. I don't like women's basketball. It's boring compared to the men's because it's not as competitive. Well, hi, are you not seeing why? You're not allowing people to compete at the highest level against the highest competition possible. And I know I'm harping over transgender female athletes, and that's because transgender male athletes aren't seen as a threat, so no one cares. And that, ugh, they have completely no regulations. Take your hormones, compete at what you want. You're not a threat. We don't care.
2: I, I laugh because it's like the level of frustration as you go down this rabbit hole. And, and clearly, Melissa, like you are so well-versed on this entire subject and the history and the examples of athletes being subjugated to this, you know, and my mind goes to, as someone who, say, is an athlete specifically, who's standing up for the rights of this entire movement, right? Say someone who is very actively campaigning to increase the rights and the visibility and equal treatment of people in the LGBTQ plus community. But then you see all of these, not just hoops, but things that they are re- requiring for you to physically change your body just in order to compete in the sport you love. It begs the question to me of, as an activist, right? Does it serve one as an athlete in this kind of position to say, you know what? I'm actually going to say, fuck this. I'm not going to jump through all the hoops. I'm not going to play the game. Or as a stance of an activist to say, you know, I will jump through the hoops, even though I know if I win and I do well, you're going to eviscerate me in the media. It- it's almost like a lose. It's like you can't win. It's They set it up in a way that's like a lose-lose.
1: <laughs> I mean, this is where... My best friend, my best friend in the whole wide world is a transgender female who plays football and I adore her. And this is something we talk about all the time is that if she's successful, she's punished, accused of cheating. And if she sucks at it, no one cares and no one makes a scene. But she also says this, her existing is such a visceral threat to some people that the fact that she can even walk on the field is all that matters. She is just happy to play. She is just happy to have access to the field to do the sport that she loves, that she never had an opportunity to play before. So when it comes to what they care about, it comes down to what are the benefits of sport? Why do people sport? Why do people go and run every day? Mental health, the endorphin runs Of actually getting out and being active. That is the point of sport. That is the point of jumping through the hoops to have that release, to have that activity of just pure joy and love. And that's why I'm excited to be located in Minnesota where we have a very inclusive sport policy across the board. At the high school level, if you identify as female, you compete as a female. It does not matter whether you have been given access to hormones, have been given access to surgery, have been given access to anything. If you identify as female, you can compete as a female with no restrictions placed on you at all. And having that style of inclusivity at the high school level is so important to the mental health of growing youth. Who, honestly, who cares? Who cares is the state's champ for that year? Because here's the thing. Can anybody honestly, when they look back at when they were in high school, unless your school was the state champ, do you know who the state champ was? No, no one cares. Let the kids compete. Let them identify who they want to identify as and let them be themselves. It's going to make such a difference in just having healthier humans across the board. Yes. And,
0: I'm so glad that you said that because I think that "who cares" mentality applies to so much of our lives. And one thing I'm curious because I'm not that into sports or I don't really watch athletes. I'll occasionally watch the Olympics, but it's not something I, I'm super interested in. But Jason is really interested in basketball. I watch actually baseball from time to time, I'll, and the you know like the World Series I find interesting. But it's a rare thing. I'm curious for you, Jason, as a viewer. You're very accepting. But is there ever a moment where you have seen somebody of a, of a different gender or identity that has impacted the way that you view sports? Like One person that comes to mind whose name I'm completely blanking on, but I can see his face. He was dating Carmen Electra at some point. That's the only fact
2: I can remember about him. Dennis Rodman.
0: Yes. He comes to mind for me because I remember seeing him when I was younger and like being fascinated by him.
2: I mean, so first of all, I mean, that's my hometown. So, I mean, I grew up watching the Pistons. I was a huge Detroit Pistons fan, the bad boy days. And, you know, Rodman, when he first got into the league, was very much not this very flamboyant, boisterous Unique sort of personality, or at least he didn't show it. Right, it was obviously in him. But I remember into the '90s, like the mid '90s, when he was playing for, he actually left the Pistons and played for the Spurs and then the Bulls. He came into this embodied personality of dyeing his hair, and he was, from what I remember, one of the first NBA players to be covered in, to even have tattoos and have piercings, and you know, be doing things that people would label as controversial, or he was a misfit or whatever. And I loved Dennis Rodman because he was a person in sports that his personality, his self-expression, his tattoos, his piercings, his flamboyance, his sexuality, that there were things that I, as an artist and a young man, identified more than, you know, like I said, sort of the typical alpha aggro behavior of a lot of athletes. So Rodman for me was actually super inspirational. And I remember at that time I was playing basketball in high school and still is my favorite sport. And he just, he stood out because he was so radically himself in a sea of kind of sameness. And I don't know, Rodman to me, I don't know, he gets vilified a lot. But for me, if I look at him in the pantheon of pro sports, he was one of the first guys that I was like, this dude is letting his quote freak flag fly and he doesn't give a shit. And I love that about him.
0: And what's interesting is as you're talking about this, Jason, like, I can't immediately think of anybody else. And again, part of this is because I'm not really that into sports, but who else stands out for you in sports? Is it only him or are there other examples?
2: I mean, there's the one that also comes to mind. I remember in the in the 90s was a center that played for uh, the New Jersey Nets. It was Jason, Jason Williams. I need to look him up real quick. It's Jason. I'm trying to think of his last name. But he was the first professional basketball player that came out as homosexual. It was... Oh, it was Jason Collins. Yeah, he was the first openly gay athlete in North America's four major sports teams. And I just remember hearing that about Jason Collins and being like, I really respect this man for his courage because, you know, basketball, I remember reading around that time when he came out of certain athletes who played for other teams saying, there would be no way I'd share a locker room with, you know, a gay teammate. And all of the resistance and vilification and hatred he got. When he came out as the first, again, openly gay player in, in the major national sports teams here in North America. So Jason Collins is the other one that I remember when he came out, I was like, man, this guy is got so much courage to do this. And so he's the other person, Whitney, that comes to mind.
0: But isn't it kind of interesting that you can only think of two examples? Like, again, it's not like you're you know every every athlete out there. But I'm fascinated by the fact that we can only come up with two people on the spot between you and me combined. And you know, Melissa, I imagine you know so many more. But like that just is a big curiosity for me. It's like why isn't this more common? And maybe it is, but like you know, I feel like common is often. It's all relative, but relative to like how many people even know somebody who is not cisgendered or identify or however they're showing up in their lives at that point, that we don't have that many examples. And I think that's part of what's starting to shift, but perhaps like what leads to ignorance in someone like myself.
1: Well, I think when looking at professional athletes, we have a major issue in the fact that one you automatically lean towards traditional male sports, agro-male, football, basketball, baseball, versus when you look at female sports, there's a very large LBGTQ population within that community. And I don't know if that's a contributing factor, but they're much more inclusive. There are so many more gay female athletes than that are out and publicly out than there are in the agro male. Because again, what you said, Jason, the discomfort of being outed the locker room, the perceived notion of what is societally acceptable.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, we're talking about athletics, of course, I think about my athletic career that didn't go beyond college for various reasons. But I remember in high school, there was I don't know if this is apropos of anything. It's just kind of a memory that I hadn't thought about in a long time. One of my best friends, Mary, who lived around the block from me in Detroit, she was an extraordinary basketball player. Like regardless of, you know, boys, team girls, she was a fucking amazing basketball player. And since she was so close and we were friends, I remember we started in high school to play one-on-one. We'd play one-on-one pickup games between us. And I remember some of the other, you know, guys that I would hang out with, like make these like offhand, like offhand comments of like, well, oh, you're playing it. you playing one-on-one against Mary. I'm like, have you played one-on-one against her? because she can fucking ball, man. You know, and, and there was this bizarre judgment of like, oh, you're playing against a girl. And I'm like, yeah, because we have fun and it both makes us better. I could give a shit about, it's like, I don't care that she identifies as a woman. I care about the fact that she's my friend and that she's an incredible basketball player. It's not that I don't see her gender or, or what she's chosen, but it was like, I remember this thing of my guy friends, like giving me all this shit. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like it, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that I love her. She's a friend and we're both, pushing each other to be better players. And her level of skill could have easily, easily fit on, you know, the boys basketball team. Like she was that good. But of course, you know, being in, in the nineties in Detroit and the paradigm we were in, like that would have probably never happened. She was that outstanding of an athlete that I just wanted to play against someone who was incredible. But I just remember, you know, all the bullshit that I got for that and and thinking how odd it was.
1: I mean, this gets into societal norms though. This gets into the glass ceiling the glass cliff, the thought that oh, look at this company has its first female CEO. This individual is the first female vice president. It really starts going into the aspects of you can have a male do something successful and they're labeled the first person on the moon, first person to do this. But if a female does it, they're the first female. Even if they are the first person to do it, they still get the moniker of the female. And we are never, ever separated from our gender. We're always seen by that. And this is where when someone is non-binary and they fluctuate, it can make people uncomfortable and it can make individuals struggle with how do they fit into the box that makes me happy. And that's where we as allies have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because ultimately what they're doing, their journey to help them survive in this world has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with what is best for them and how they need to survive
2: yeah it's this practice we get you mentioned being radically uncomfortable, and obviously the name of our podcast begets that we want to have these kind of conversations that break us open in different ways and open our minds and our hearts to things we've never considered before you know and, and a thing that i I sit with too is as someone who identifies as male you know I think about the elements of the patriarchy I think about the levels of oppression and suppression and subjugation that men continue to you know, leverage in this world out of control and fear and those things. And I've tried to look into like, for lack of a better word, sort of the heart of darkness, you know, of why are men so afraid to give up control? Why are they so afraid to give up power? Why are they so afraid to grant basic respect and equal rights and equal pay and just let people be as they are, you know, and really trying to examine the deep, deep, deep rooted mentality and ethos behind all this. And I don't know that I have any answers. I'm kind of putting this out as maybe a deeper, more macro level question of, you know, why the fuck are men so terrified of giving up their control and their power and their influence?
1: I think when we're able to answer that question, a lot of the nuances and issues and suppression and repression that we have going on in society will be resolved. When we have the answer to that question, a lot of the crap that happens with individuals that is just horrifying and harmful, I mean, being... If you were going to pick a population and go, you have the highest risk of being murdered, that would be a transgendered Black woman. A transgender Black woman has the highest risk of being murdered simply for existing. Her existence is such a threat, apparently, to the society at whole that she has an extraordinarily high risk of just being killed for just living her life. So... Your question, when we as a society can answer it, a lot of shit's going to get fixed. A lot. But I don't, I don't have an answer for what the issue is. I think it will slowly phase out out of time when we have individuals in government that were born in the 1940s. I don't necessarily know how they can even relate to what the rest of society is dealing with right now.
2: Yeah. So it's almost like in a certain way not to sound macabre or morose, but waiting for many of the individuals who are of that generation that are currently in places of power, whether that's corporate or governmental, to kind of die off and let maybe a more, for lack of a better word, progressive, open-minded, liberal, accepting individuals be into these places of power, right? And it brings up also the question of, you know, sort of generational conditioning of, you know, right now, I guess we're talking about people that are might be typically, you know, baby boomers in these positions of power versus how prejudice. And ignorance and hatred is passed down through generations. Cause I've thought about this too, Melissa. You know, you bring this up of well, you know, let them die off, the closed-minded, prejudiced, ignorant ones, the hateful ones, let us let them die off. But what about the principles that say their kids or their grandchildren may have patterned after them? I'm not saying it's an absolute corollary, but my curiosity is are we going to see progress when those individuals die off and new people assume those roles of power in our society? Versus how do we address hatred and prejudice being passed Passed down as a learned behavior through generations, you know?
1: Oh, Jason, I don't know. Because it's true. It's not necessarily just the baby boomers, because I I know some phenomenal individuals that have learned and grown and are very accepting and are part of the community. And then I know some 20-somethings that if I could smack them with my shoe over the nose when they just say bigoted comments... I would. It's really one of those pieces that we as a society need to step back and go, okay, if we're going to survive, and it really is a survive thing, if we're going to survive, we're going to have to look beyond us as an individual and actually look at the macrocosm of human society and go, what do we need to do as a collective to actually make this world work? How do we make sure everyone has food and shelter, everyone has access to healthcare. How do we allow people to have the access to basic human needs to survive? And when we allow that type of access to everyone, that's when we're really going to excel and succeed as a society. And that can be very threatening to people in power. Because when you empower the impoverished, things change, big things change, revolutions happen. And it's just incredible. But in particular for the LGBTQ and the transgender population, we just need to protect them and be accommodating and allow them to live their lives in the gender that they identify as. And big things that I have found that are, we as allies can have some microaggressions towards them. And microaggressions are simply where we say something inadvertently that causes them mental harm. And it's not something we actually even realize we're doing. One of them is preferred, saying that they're using their preferred name or their preferred pronouns. They're not preferred. Preferences are, do you like iced coffee or hot coffee? Do you like tea or coffee? That's a preference. This is their gender. This is their identity. You don't, that's not a willy-nilly concept. That is who they are. And so we need to start using, these are their genders. This is their name. And being very careful not to inadvertently Dead name them. Dead name being the name that they were born with that does not fit the identity that they present with. Dead naming can be one of the most harmful things. And this can be incredibly challenging when you knew them prior to their transition to their authentic self. And everything they do to affirm themselves is their decision, meaning simply changing their name and changing their pronouns can be all that they have to do to affirm who they are as a person. And that's okay. It could be going as far as hormones and surgery and completely restructuring who they are. That could be what is required for them to affirm their identity. And that's okay. And we as a society need to support them having access to whatever they need to achieve that level of self-affirmness and self-identity. And it's okay if we don't understand. We just need to support them and do the best we can to make sure that in their transition, as they get there, we use what makes them happy. And I know at the very beginning, Whitney, you mentioned being kind of uncomfortable with the use of the singular they. And it's so funny when you look at the history of when was the first singular they utilized within the English language, it goes all the way back to middle English in middle English in like the 1300s. It has always been a part of our language. And when we think about it, it's when it becomes uncomfortable because we use it subconsciously throughout our day. It could be as simple as, oh, the postman delivered my mail today. They left a package because we don't know if it's a postman or a postwoman or a postperson. We, But the fact that we even
0: use words like postman is like part of the language, right?
1: Yeah, that is something mail carrier, I believe, is what they're starting. Mail carrier is a nice gender neutral. As long as it's not confused with male, M-A-L-E,
0: right? (laughs) But as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I've never thought about it. Male carrier or male carrier spelled different. I mean, I know what you mean, but it's funny how, you know, these words that we become so accustomed to using, we have to step back
1: and really examine
0: them, you
1: know? It's a mess. The simple, short, and sweet of it is it's a mess. The English language, or frankly, any language that is gendered in some way, shape, or form becomes very uncomfortable. And it is a learning curve. So working with a female football team and working with my linemen, my line people, I usually call them the line people because it's easier Other terms, there isn't like quarterback, tailback, running back, linebacker. All of those are fairly neutral. But the linemen, line people, they're my line people. Because on top of it, on my women's football team, I have non-binary individuals. So I never walk up, and this was a language switch for me. I never walk up to my team and go, okay, ladies, let's circle up. Because I have individuals that aren't ladies on that team.
0: Right. It's like, yes, that reminds me, too, of I'm trying to get out of the habit of saying, hey, guys. And I've been saying that for so much of my life. And every once in a while, somebody points that out to me and I'm like, oh, yeah, like (laughs) I could benefit from switching up my habits, which is really what it is. Just like saying, hey, ladies.
1: Yep. So it's just taking those small shifts, those small language shifts. So my football team, I go, hey, pride, hey, purple, Let's circle up players, athletes. All of those are great non-gendered terms that allow me to get them where I need them to go while making everyone feel included in the activity. And that's just something simple we can do as allies is just being cognizant. It's a big one I heard with is giving a speech. Instead of saying, ladies and gentlemen, say, distinguished guests, thank you for joining me this evening. Ooh, I like that a
0: lot. (laughs) That sounds so much better. But it, it requires so much training. And, you know, as you've been sharing this, Melissa, it's so enlightening. And it's such a great reminder. And I'm also recognizing how much work I have to do. And I hope that the listener is feeling that way, too, if they're not already there. It's like we can get defensive, Or we can feel like, oh, it's too much work. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to be able to switch my language around. I'm always going to make mistakes. Like we can get into this either defensive or defeatist mentality because it feels a little overwhelming. And we also are in a time of cancel culture where it feels like if you say the wrong thing, somebody's going to call you out and bully you, cancel you, shame you publicly, which makes me really nervous. But As I said earlier, what I really learned in 2020, especially when it came to the Black Lives Matter movement, like I decided I would rather make mistakes. And admit my ignorance and acknowledge my racism that I didn't even notice I had. And probably, I mean, I'm sure I still have it within me. It's so much to unravel and it might even take the rest of my life just like this subject matter. And noticing all of my language habits and my assumptions that I make and just really growing that awareness. That's actually been the one thing that Jason and I keep coming back to on this podcast is it, it comes down to awareness. It's not about... Yeah,
1: you just have to own your... You have to own when you mess up. And when you own what happened and you apologize for it and you don't try to hide behind a defense, it's going to be much more accepting. Because yes, there are going to be times you screw up and... I have definitely put my foot in my mouth so many times in my process of learning. My first experience with a transgender patient in clinic, I had never never dealt with someone who is transgender prior to that experience. And they had to teach me how to care for them, basically, understand what medications they had to be on. And that's that's just wrong. I should not have to have my patient teach me how to care for them because I'm ignorant of what they need. And then it just, as with most things, when I don't know something, I dive down the rabbit hole and I go real deep, real far, real fast, because I don't want to be left in a state of ignorance. I want to take the time to understand what people need and how I can care for them. And then I want to make sure that I'm bringing up my profession and people with me so that we have a fleet of people that can help and not have to be trained by the patients that they're trying to care for.
2: The thing that comes up for me is this idea of personhood in the sense that from a perspective, I guess, of legalities or our legal system or the constitution, or we go down this rabbit hole of how our government and society has been set up the foundations of how things run. And looking at, you know, the roadblocks and the ways that institutions and and systems that we have in place are still set up to benefit a very narrow, specific aspect of people in our society. But this idea of personhood, you know, thinking about after you know, the slaves were freed and and it wasn't really totally freed because their personhood wasn't being acknowledged. And now talking about the LGBTQ plus community and and how their personhood isn't fully recognized or acknowledged. And I know I keep going back to more of these maybe esoteric or or, or deeper questions, but these are the things I ruminate on is like when are we just collectively going to look at a human being and say, You're worthy of protection, you're worthy of basic rights, you're worthy of all of the access and support and as you said Melissa the basic needs of food shelter care health wellness i get fired up about it i get i get fired up about thinking how systematically oppressed so many people are and i as someone who like whitney endeavors to be more of an activist and more of an ally and keep learning and keep being uncomfortable and keep fucking up and keep apologizing sometimes the totality of the oppression and the totality of like oh my god things are really fucking bad I struggle to be optimistic sometimes. And, and I guess I'm just curious, you know, for both of you, like maybe it's just me. I don't know. I, I tend to look at the glass maybe half empty a little too much, but I sometimes just feel overwhelmed by like, wow, we have a lot of work to do and there's so much oppression and hatred and systematic enslavement. Like, God, sometimes it's like, where do we start?
1: Yeah, I am definitely a glass half full or at least the glass is full of piss or something like that type of person. <laughs> So it's one of those things where I don't know if in our lifetime we will fully see realization of humans being seen as worthy, no matter race, ethnicity, gender, sex, orientation. I don't know. We're getting closer. We're getting better. Things are going-ish in the right direction. But then there are times where... Depending upon what the government is doing, their rights are stripped and things are taken away and they're dehumanized. So I wish I could say, "Oh, 15 years, we're going to have this down, we're going to be fine." But humans suck. We just suck.
2: I guess the idea is then, how do we suck less? (laughs) I sit with that all the time. Honestly, you know, where are my blind spots? Where's my ignorance? Where's my prejudice? Where's my assumptions? As as Whitney was brilliantly detailing, and I think if a if a person is at least willing to look at their bullshit and look at their ignorance and look at their blind spots and say, "Wow, damn, I have a ton of work to do," it's not easy, you know. And I think if people were to say, "Okay, if I want to grow as a being and be a steward of equanimity and actual unconditional love and balance and peace on this planet," it does require hard work. You know, it's not like we slap, snap our fingers. It's like I've released all of my attachments and ignorance and prejudice. It's, it's really hard work. I think to want to be. A global citizen who is really truly contributing to the betterment of society, not just giving it lip service, right? Because I think one of the biggest things that Whitney and I were really mindful of, and continue to be mindful of, is performative activism. You know, that's a big thing that came up, obviously in 2020. It's still being talked about now. Is this idea of a brand or a corporation or an individual or a social media influencer putting out content or messages or advertising that's like "We're with you, guys. You know, "We're, we're, we're with you, people." Like whatever, whatever the thing was black lives matter, LGBTQ plus it's, but sometimes I wonder, you know, and I don't know about wonder because I can kind of feel into my body. Like they don't really mean it. They're doing it to like, you know, save face or present something to the world of like, we really care. But a lot of the messages, not all, a lot of the messages I'll receive and something in my gut is like, I don't think you really mean it. And so I, I'm curious for you, Melissa, you know, this aspect of quote, performative activism, how it hits you and what you have observed around that whole concept.
1: So it really comes down to, I think it's going to be grassroots. It's not going to be the big building. It's not going to be the big company. It's not going to be a huge government overhaul. It's going to be small Grassroots movements that allow access, that provide human right access and give them what they need and then have that slowly spread. It is going to be individual to individual because that's the only way we're going to have influence, is as we look at our elected officials, they have to be elected by the people. And If they don't represent the ideals that we want, then they don't get elected, theoretically. And that's where we've got to start small. We need to start small changing local city governments, local state governments, and then that will influence up. I think if we try to go big down, it's going to get corrupted. And so each individual person taking on that proactive allyship to the communities and to the individuals that need it. So when you have the privilege of existing without fear, you need to use that to help those who can't. One of the most powerful things I ever saw was this, and I'm going to hate myself because I can't remember her name. The speaker was talking to a group of women and it was a discussion about racism and systemic racism. And all the people in the audience were like, oh, that doesn't exist. We're allies. We know what's going on. And she looked at them and just went, look, I want you to change who you are as a person so that you are treated by society how the black population is treated. I want you to exist in society, how the LGBTQ plus is treated in society. Stand up if you are willing to make that change so that you are treated that way. And no one left their seat. And she went, okay, and you're telling me systemic racism, systemic bigotry doesn't exist? Why aren't you willing to switch places with them and live in society how they are treated? And if you're not comfortable entering society and existing in society as a Black woman, as a Black man, as a transgendered individual, as an LGBTQ plus community member then you're part of the problem and we need to start shifting it. And when we start looking at it that way, that's going to force people to make shifts because it's uncomfortable.
2: I really just like felt into that, you know, of the reticence people have to actually stand in someone else's shoes, you know, given the choice. That was such a profound Stay, with Melissa. I, I would love if you if you can actually find that video after the podcast and send it to us. I'd absolutely love to see that, and we can also link to it in the show notes for this episode. You know, as we get, I guess, closer to to closing and wrapping up here, Melissa, you mentioned doing this in a very grassroots, a very underground, a very one on one individuals working with un- other individuals to grow this movement and have equal rights. What's something, I guess, an immediate takeaway in that vein of this grassroots movement working together, that if the listener wanted to say, okay, I feel really passionate about this and my mind's open, my heart's more open, what can I immediately do on a local level? What would you recommend for that person or even us? Because I'm more inspired than I was before this podcast as well. What can we do on a very, very micro local level to really start to step up and make some headway here?
1: Oh, that. Is a very good question. Oh my goodness, that is a good question. I'm gonna need to just think
2: about this. For yeah, a I realized I kind of walloped you with a big one here as we're we're getting close to the end.
1: <laughs> uh, I think big things are is that so I'm gonna give a couple things. One, when possible. Introduce yourself to a new person, state your name, state your pronouns, give them the allyship of understanding. You don't care who they are, whether you are 99.9% sure you know who their gender is, don't make the assumption. Introduce who you are, state your pronouns. The other thing you can do is, frankly, be comfortable with people in society. I know one of the biggest fears my best friend has is simply going to the restroom, walking into a women's restroom to use the restroom, she's terrified. She's terrified of being attacked. And I think just being accepting of individuals and being protective. If you see someone being attacked, being belittled, being harmed for who they are, step in and defend them. Even if you have no idea who they are, be the actual ally, be their straight shield. So that you take that damage because they live that day in and day out and you can just walk around and do your own thing. But when you see someone truly being verbally abused, just step in and be like, hey, this isn't necessary. They're just living their life. And there are times you you see it going on in malls, you see the passive aggressiveness, and that's just a little thing that maybe simply by providing that person public shame, peer pressure, you shamed them for their behavior. It might make them change. It might make them second guess what they're doing. And you've just provided protection and true allyship to the person that was being attacked.
2: It's powerful takeaways, Melissa. I mean, this whole episode has been just so full of really empowering, enlightening perspectives. And I know that I certainly feel just a deeper sense of expansion and awareness. I, I just want to thank you for for coming on here with us and, and dropping so many so many knowledge bombs, if you will. That's a, that's a bad, that's violent. Let's go. I, I always say knowledgeable uh, flower vase is full of knowledge. That's better than bombs. See, even I'm trying to fix my language too. It's like I say shit and I'm like, don't, you know, talk about bombs, talk about violent things. So I, again, it's, I'm just giving another example of how much work I need to do on my conscious languaging. So we just want to thank you so much. And for you, dear listener, if you want to dig into more of what Melissa is sharing with this world, she's got a wonderful podcast, the Mac Performance Podcast. We will link to that in the show notes. We'll link to Melissa's websites, all of her social media links for you to follow up if you want to connect with her. And for everything we've mentioned today, all the resources, you can go to our website, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can click on the podcast section. It will take you to the show notes and the resources for this episode and all of our previous ones. And of course, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast for really incredible, deep, enlightening, heartfelt episodes like this one we just wrapped with Melissa. It's Melissa, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here for so many reasons. Thank you for going deep with us for sharing your work in the world and ways that we can really start to show up in more powerful and supportive ways.
1: Oh, thank you for having me and uh, allowing me to have this platform to just share to share something I have a passion for and I just appreciate you guys letting me letting me get on my soapbox a little bit. We love that. We love soapboxes
0: here and I think this is such a blessing for us because like Jason said, we've learned so much personally, and it's an honor to be able to share that with others and, you know, do that through us learning. I mean, th- I think that was the thing that I was reflecting a lot upon as I was listening to you, Melissa, is just simply the act of listening to somebody and allowing yourself to grow and absorb information and raise your awareness. As I said earlier, that to me is. I think one of the best things that we can do is to step back when we don't understand something and educate ourselves on it. And that's really what I felt like I was doing today in this episode. And hearing your passion evokes passion within me. And I feel inspired, as Jason said. And we would really love to hear from the audience on the subject matter and encourage you, the listener, to share this episode. We're grateful when you share any episode of ours, but I think this one in particular, I really encourage you to spread around because as Melissa was talking, I was reflecting on how far we have to go, you know, and shedding our ignorance here. And a lot of that is simply spreading the word in a kind and compassionate way. It's educating our friends and our family members. It's speaking up, as you were saying, Melissa, when we see behavior that is done in ignorance or judgment or cruelty and letting others know that we don't stand for that, you know, and, and as I said at the very beginning, simply acknowledging your pronouns and as Melissa said, whether that's in person or online on social media, in your bios. And, you know, after this episode, I want to start doing an overhaul and go add that to my platforms as long as that might take me. <laughs> but I think that's an ongoing process. You know, it's learning these things, making the changes, growing our awareness, and being humble about what we know and, and what our past has been and how we want to show up in the present and in the future. So thanks again, Melissa. Uh, as Jason mentioned, we will be linking to the resources. Melissa shared a really wonderful mental health resource from Trans Health Consulting, I believe. Uh, that'll be in the show notes at wellvator.com. If you haven't been to our w- website before, it's spelled W-E-L-L evatr.com. If you go to the podcast section, you'll find this episode and everything will be there, including the transcript. So if you want to send a, a quote to somebody or a specific section of this in, in text form, that is available for you to and we would love to hear from you as well. There's a comment section there. You can reach us on social media. We'll be linking to Melissa so you can reach out to her and listen to her show, find her on social media. All of that will be there for you at wellevator.com. W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.